Hi, this is Steve Thomas, pastor of the First Baptist Church at Delray Beach. Welcome to our podcast. We study God's Word to apply it to our lives in order to make a difference in this life and in eternity. We hope you enjoy this message. We cry out, we cry out. Good morning. I don't rarely get introduced from Jamaica, but that's, that's pretty cool. Uh, as Pastor Steve said, my name is Rich Freeman. I'm a Jewish believer in Jesus, born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. So how many of you are from Brooklyn? Let me see. Come on. How many are from New York? That's a little better. How many of you are from the Northeast? Nobody's really from Florida. Come on. Anyway, it's good to, it's good to be with you. And... Uh, as I begin, uh, the ministry that I, I represent is called Chosen People Ministries, and we bring the gospel to Jewish people around the world. Our website is chosenpeople.com if you want to check it out while I'm talking. But all that to say that uh, what I'm going to share with you is something that the Lord put on my heart. And uh, After Pastor Steve and I had lunch at Poppy's, uh, and he asked me to, to really kind of encourage you about being here in this neighborhood, how important it is to reach Jewish people. And so we're going to talk about that. But before we begin, I want to share this little story with you. A story about a man who was in the process of robbing a house. The house was pitch black. He had scoped it out, so he knew there was a lot of good loot in it. And as he's putting the loot into a sack, uh, it was very quiet, and he heard this voice. Jesus is going to get you. <laughs> and he stopped. He thought, well, I must be hearing things. And it got a little louder. Jesus is going to get you. Now he's thinking, uh-oh. And then it got even louder, and the voice was, seemed to keep getting closer. And it got real loud. Jesus is going to get you. So now he's thinking, of all the luck, I have to end up robbing a haunted house. And so he remembered that he had a cigarette lighter in his pocket. He takes it out. He flicks the lighter. The Light from the flame comes on, the room is lit up, and there on the bookshelf in the corner of the room is this big old parrot. <laughs> and the parrot looks at him and says, Jesus is going to get you. <laughs> and so he says, man, Polly, you really scared me. I thought you were a ghost. And the parrot defiantly looks at the man and says, my name's not Polly, it's Moses. He said, Moses, what kind of person names their parrot Moses? The parrot said, the same person that named their Rottweiler Jesus. Get him, Jesus! <laughs> that has absolutely nothing to do with what I want to share with you this morning, but I like telling those stories. I've been in ministry for a long time, and uh, when you share the gospel with Jewish people and speak in churches, there's one question that I get asked a lot, and maybe it's something you're thinking about even now. And the question is, why is it so hard for Jewish people to believe in Jesus? It seems so obvious to me, and yet clearly they don't. And recent surveys, Chosen People Ministries and another ministry uh, did a survey with Lifeway uh, trying to find out how many Jewish believers there are in the world. And basically, first we wanted to ask some questions that determined that they were truly born-again believers. And then if there was a, a Jewish person, either parent or grandparent, uh, in their family line. And 
appears that there's about a half a million Jewish believers in the world. About a half a million. Now there's about 15 million Jewish people in the world. So we're talking about, at the most, about 3% of the Jewish population believes in Jesus. So what that means is 97% of the Jewish people, the people through whom Jesus came, do not, I repeat, do not believe that Jesus is their Messiah. And the vast majority of them believe that he's the reason for all of their problems as a people group. I grew up believing that the Holocaust was nothing more than Christian payback for the Jews killing Christ. And so when we try to answer that question, why is it so hard uh, for Jewish people to believe in Jesus? It really is not a straightforward question. I wish there was a quick solution to the problem. I wish I could come to you and say, here's what you need to say, and then all your problems are over, but that's not the case. So what I'd like to do with this message is try and explain to you where they're coming from, what their mindset is, and in the process answer the question, why is it so hard for them to believe? And in, in essence, making it clearer on how we can best share the gospel here in Delray Beach, where so many Jewish people live. How many of you have a Jewish person in your life? Just by a show of hands. Uh, for, the, for the rest of you, just keep your eyes open. They're here, believe me. And uh, just to, to let you know, I got saved really from the testimony of a coworker who came from Texas to New York where I was working in a large corporation and he had never met a Jewish person in his life. He came from a panhandle of Texas, Canyon, Texas, near Amarillo, and he prayed that the Lord would bring a Jewish person into his life and that he could have impact on that Jewish person and on the gospel. And I was the answer to that prayer. So if you didn't raise your hand, by all means pray that the Lord will bring a Jewish person into your life and hopefully uh, we'll get some insight into how to most effectively share the gospel with them. So why don't we begin with a word of prayer and uh, we're going to try to answer that question. Why is it so hard for Jewish people to believe in Jesus? Okay, so let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for this time that we can worship. We're thankful, Lord, uh, that we have the freedom to worship you in spirit and truth. Thank you, Lord, for the worship that brought us into your presence, that gave us the joy of the Lord. So I pray, Lord, uh, that your Holy Spirit would fill us to the full. Open our eyes and our hearts to your word. Enable us, Lord, to be doers of your word and not hearers only, that we might take this word of truth and apply it to our hearts and to our lives. And we will give you all the honor and glory of because you were the only one worthy of it. And pray and give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. The answer to the question, why is it so hard for Jewish people to believe in Jesus, is not a simple answer. But I think there's three components to it that together we could kind of get some sense into why, why that is the case. And the first component is spiritual. There's a spiritual component to why it's so hard for Jewish people to believe in Jesus. If you would open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11 uh, and verse 25. This is the Apostle Paul, and he writes this, and he's writing predominantly uh, to readers who are predominantly Gentile, not Jewish. He says, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation." that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. 
Some versions say a blindness in part. And the word in the Greek is the same word you would use for hardening of the arteries. Uh, it's a calcification, if you will, of their spiritual hearts. What makes, makes it impossible for them to see Jesus as the promised Messiah. Therefore, in a sense, they're blinded. And so uh, that's what Paul is trying to, to uh, get across. But I want you to notice two things here. Number one, the hardening is partial. Notice he says, a, he didn't say complete hardening, but a hardening in part or a partial hardening. And I'm here as a Jewish believer as proof of that. Are there any other Jewish believers in the room? Nope. Sometimes I usually find one or two stragglers. You can see there's not a lot of us. We are part of what's called the remnant. And so that hardening is partial. Jewish people still get saved, can get saved, are getting saved. And we're seeing more Jewish people getting saved probably than at any, any time since the first century. So be encouraged by that. In fact, Jesus said uh, to Jewish people, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Jesus gave us a clue to his return that Jewish people, a sign of it would be Jewish people turning back to him. So be encouraged that we're getting closer to his return. Secondly, the time is not forever. There's a duration of time until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. What does that mean? Well, the word translated fullness has both a quantitative and a qualitative uh, aspect to it. If you have a new international version, it says until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. That would be the quantitative aspect of it. And for sure, God knows that there's a number of Gentiles that are going to get saved before this period of time ends. But I don't know about you, but when I hear until the full number of the Gentiles comes in, I picture some lower-level angel, sort of like a deacon, who's in heaven, and he has a counter. And this poor guy is just counting away, counting, counting, counting. And he's looking at the other angels. Is that the number yet? Is that the number yet? And he's still waiting for that full number of the Gentiles to come in. So I don't think that's what Paul is meaning by that. But rather, I believe it's talking about the age that we live in, the church age. And it is the time when God is dealing primarily in the world with Gentiles, with the nations. Jesus said to his Jewish followers, go and make disciples of whom? All the nations. So the original great commission that Jesus gave to his followers who were Jewish was the message of the Jewish Messiah, now Savior of the world, is not going to be for Jews only, but it will be for everyone. And now the message to everyone is we need to bring the gospel back to the Jewish people. Bring the message back to the original messengers and get that across. So as we look at the fullness of the Gentiles, what I think that's talking about is that when the church is raptured up, caught up to be with the Lord in the clouds, the church age ends and then God once again will be dealing with the world, not through the church, but through Israel primarily through the 144,000 Jewish evangelists that God is going to raise up in the last days. And those 144,000 are 12,000 from 12 different tribes. They're not Jehovah's Witnesses. If a Jehovah's Witness knocks on your door, tell them you're not one of those. And actually, they had a problem. That was their original theological thinking that the 144,000 were Jehovah's Witnesses. The problem was they didn't estimate that the cult would grow so much. 
And so now there's a lot more than 144,000. There's actually in the millions. And there was 144,000 were the ones on earth, 144,000 another in heaven, and everybody else was a servant. So if you're a Jehovah's Witness now, the best you could hope for is being a servant of the 144,000. That being said, it's all a bunch of bunk. That's a theological term, by the way. And so what we have here is these Jewish believers are going to be sharing the gospel in what's going to be the greatest revival in the history of mankind during what's commonly called the tribulation period. And that's the spiritual component of this, that until uh, the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, there's a partial hardening. That's why it's so hard for Jewish people to believe, because there's a hardening that takes place. And I could tell you in my own life, in my own experience, until that scales came off my eyes, I could not see. And when I opened the Bible and I began reading it from cover to cover, I saw Jesus everywhere, from Genesis to Revelation. And just seeing Jesus and recognizing who Jesus was opened my eyes. But until that happened, wasn't able to do that. So there's that spiritual aspect. Secondly, there's a historical component. Now, the early church, I'm talking about 1st, 2nd, 3rd century, saw itself connected to its Jewish roots. The resurrection of the Lord was always celebrated on the Sunday following the Passover Sabbath, called the Feast of First Fruits. In fact, Paul wrote Christ the first fruits of the dead in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And as Paul said that, that should tell you that if you want to know what the resurrection is going to look like, what your resurrection is going to look like, just look to the Gospels. If Jesus is the first fruits of the dead, his resurrection is the beginning of what will be a resurrection of all the believers. So we could look at Jesus' resurrection to get that sense of what it would be like. And so Jesus had flesh, he had bone, he had a meal with his disciples, and he could appear in a locked room instantaneously. It's going to be cooler than Star Trek, I promise you. And all of that to be said, what are we going to look like? My mom just died a couple of years ago. She was 90 years old. She was a believer in Jesus. Is she going to spend eternity as a 90-year-old, very frail 90-year-old woman? I don't believe so. And I, I think if we look to Jesus as the resurrection, he was 33 years old. So that sounds pretty good to me. I don't know, maybe some of you young people are thinking, ooh, that's old, but 33 sounds pretty good to me. So... The early church kind of saw itself connected uh, to the Old Testament, connected to its Jewish roots. That changed with Constantine and the Council of Nicaea in the year 325 AD. It was there that the church began a concerted effort to remove itself from its Jewish roots, and it began by focusing on the resurrection and the Passover. See, up until then, again, the resurrection of the Lord was always celebrated with Passover. It was actually looked at as one long weekend. Passover, the resurrection was all connected. Passover representing Jesus' death, the resurrection obviously representing his resurrection from the dead. So Constantine and his chief theologian, Augustine, really were blatantly anti-Semitic and wanted to remove themselves from the Jewishness of Christianity. And what they did, uh, basically, Augustine 
was the one who invented what's now known as replacement theology. What he said was that the church has replaced Israel in the promises and blessings of God. Goes to the church, not to Israel. And listen, Constantine felt that there needed to be a change. There needed to be a removal from any connection uh, to the Jewish roots of Christianity. So listen to what he said. This was about celebrating the resurrection of the Passover, on the Passover. He said, let there be nothing in common between you, this is a quote from Constantine, between you and the, the, the detestable mob of Jews. We have received from the Savior another way. A course is open to our most holy religion that is both lawful and proper. Let us with one accord take up this course, right honorable brothers, and so tear ourselves away from that disgusting complicity. For it is surely quite grotesque for them to be able to boast that we would be incapable of keeping these observances without their instruction. In other words, what Constantine was saying is, if they're going to celebrate the resurrection on the Sunday after Passover, they're going to need to know when the Passover is. And, and Passover is based on a Hebrew calendar, so it's always changing. And he wanted to remove it from that. So what the Council of Nicaea did was they changed when the celebration of the resurrection would take place. Instead of celebrating the resurrection on the Sunday after the Passover Sabbath, the Feast of First Fruits, it's now celebrated on the first Sunday following the first full moon of the spring. And its new name was given after the Babylonian goddess of fertility, Ishtar. So that's where the name Easter comes from. And that's also where the Easter bunny comes from, where the chicks and the, and the Easter eggs and all those fertility symbols comes from, comes from Ishtar worship. It's what's known as syncretism, when you blend uh, the worship of idols and, and real worship. It's called syncretism. So, from Constantine onward, the church took on a real anti-Semitic bent. And while it was predominant in the Roman Catholic Church, the Protestant Church had its own stuff. Listen to what one church historian wrote about the father of the Reformation, Martin Luther. He said, Martin Luther started as a supporter of the Jewish people, arguing quite rightly that they had been badly treated by the Roman Catholic Church. And quite wrongly, that, if, that they, if presented with what he regarded as a more authentic Christianity, would surely convert. In 1523, he wrote an essay entitled, That Jesus Was Born a Jew, condemning the fact that the church had, quote, dealt with the Jews as if they were dogs rather than human beings. They have done little else than to deride them and seize their property. But unfortunately, as Martin Luther seriously tried to convert Jews to Christianity, they resisted. And in 1543, his reaction to that was to publish an essay called The Jews and Their Lies, which today is shocking in its venom and even for its time stood out as particularly cruel and intolerant. In the uh, 65,000 word treatise, he calls for a litany of horrors, including the destruction of synagogues, Jewish schools, and homes, for rabbis to be forbidden to preach, for the stripping of legal protection, for the confiscation of their money and property. The Jews are, wrote Luther, a base, whoring people. That is, no people of God, and their boast of lineage, circumcision, and law must be accounted as filth. That's Martin Luther. Now, 
to his defense, and he did some incredible things as the father of the Reformation, this was at the end of his life, and some say that maybe Luther suffered from dementia. Regardless of his intentions, Luther's writing on the Jewish people had a severe impact on history. The Nazis amplified his anti-Semitism, and from the earliest days of the Nazi movement, it helped in the creation of the racist faction of Deutsch Christian, or German Christians, within the German Lutheran Church, but perhaps more significantly made it possible for Holocaust in Europe because of some of the things that he wrote. Now, changes have been made. Uh, the Catholic Church, under the leadership of Pope John, Pope John Paul II, especially removed anti-Semitic uh, rhetoric, I should say, from Catholic Church dogma, which placed the Jews perpetually uh, to be blamed for the death of Christ. But that being said, there is still a lot of work to be done regarding the church's relationship to the Jewish community. The majority of Jewish people, and I speak from my own experiences, have a suspicion that under the surface, Christianity is intrinsically anti-Semitic. So we've looked at the spiritual component that this partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And we've seen what 2,000 years of terrible church history with the Jewish people can do to make it so difficult for Jewish people to believe in Jesus. But lastly, I want to look at something a little more practical, a practical component. That's the third part of this. And for that, what I want to look at is probably a familiar story to you. It's the story of Joseph. Now, Something that you need to know as far as Jewish theology. The rabbis teach that all of the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah basically are speaking about two different Messiahs. The first one they call Mashiach ben Yosef, the Messiah, son of Joseph, the one who would suffer to save his people. The second one is Mashiach ben David, Messiah, the son of David, who would be the one who would reign as king on, his, on the throne of David in Jerusalem. So, Two different messiahs. And they teach that all of the passages talking about the suffering messiah are actually talking about the Jewish people, Israel, so that they somehow take on the role of being the savior of the world by going through all the persecution that they've gone through historically. So if you wonder where, where all of those passages like Isaiah 53 fall, that's what uh, the rabbis teach. But listen to the story of Joseph. Now, Joseph did indeed become the savior of the world, so to speak. And the story of Joseph really involves two main dreams. Joseph was 17 years old. He was the favorite son of 12 brothers of Jacob. And Jacob gave him that multicolored coat that represented his leadership in the family. It represented him receiving a second blessing beyond his brothers. His brothers hated that. They were jealous of the fact that Joseph was the favorite son. At the age of 17, Joseph has a dream that God gave him. And being an immature 17-year-old, rather than keeping it quiet, he decided to brag to his brothers. The dream was that one day his brothers would actually bow down to him. It was in the form of sheaves of wheat. And his brothers not only were jealous of, of Joseph, they now hated his guts and plotted to kill him. But instead of going ahead with that, they ended up selling him to some Ishmaelite traders, and he was sold into slavery in Egypt. 
And it was there that he was purchased by a man named Potiphar. Potiphar was the captain of Pharaoh's guard, of the Pharaoh's bodyguard. It was like he was the head of the secret service. He was also the one in charge of the jails. He was in charge of the executions. He was a very, very powerful man in Egypt. Joseph was put in charge of his household. Potiphar had a wife who had a lustful eye for Joseph. The Bible says that Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Basically, he was one of those guys that was good-looking with the six-pack abs and all of that good stuff. And Potiphar's wife wanted Joseph. Joseph resisted. No matter how hard she tried, he resisted. And finally, one last-ditch effort, she sent all the servants in the house to leave, and it was just she and Joseph alone. She figured that would be the case where he would give in, and he didn't give in. Instead, he ran away, but before he could get away, she grabbed his cloak, his outer garment, and she showed her husband this garment that Joseph left and accused Joseph of rape, of attempted rape. Now, this is the guy who's in charge of Pharaoh's executions. He's the guy who is the, one of the most powerful people in Egypt. And his wife just told him that this man attempted to rape her. Do you know what he did? He put Joseph in a white-collar jail. Think about that. If he really believed his wife, do you think that's where Joseph would have ended up? But nonetheless, Joseph ended up in this white-collar jail where he met the chief baker and chief cupbearer of Pharaoh, who also had some dreams. Joseph interpreted those dreams. One ended up being restored to his position with Pharaoh, the other one being put to death. And then finally, Pharaoh has a dream. And the chief cupbearer tells Pharaoh that there's this Hebrew in the jail who interprets dreams. They call for Joseph. Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dreams, tells him that there's going to be seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of terrible famine, and he ought to pick someone to be the one to strategize how to save the food to feed Egypt. And Pharaoh decided that Joseph was the perfect person to do that. Joseph becomes the second most powerful person in Egypt. Only the Pharaoh had more authority. Try to imagine what Mrs. Potiphar is thinking about right now. Anyway, all that to say, that's the background to what happens next. And I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 42, beginning in verse 6. Jacob and his family are running out of food. And so he sends all of Joseph's brothers, except for Benjamin, to go to Egypt to buy food. That's the background for this. Genesis 42, verse 6. Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all the people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, don't forget Joseph's dreams, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. This is 22 years later, so Joseph's 39 years old. But he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from, he asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. And I love this. Then he remembered his dreams about them. Could you imagine Joseph thinking that he had this dream when he was 17, and now he's seeing it come to pass? 
But I want to focus on this one statement, that last statement, although Joseph recognized his brothers, they didn't recognize him. This is the last aspect of why it's so hard for Jewish people to believe in Jesus. They simply don't recognize him because of how he's portrayed. Again, I, as I share with you, I grew up in, in Brooklyn, New York, in a neighborhood that was about 75% Italian Catholic and about 20% Jewish and 5% a mixture of a bunch of other things. And so I had a lot of Italian friends who were Catholic. Uh, I ended up marrying someone who was Italian, who actually led me to the Lord eventually. But all that, that being said, all my friends had these pictures in their house when you walked in. And it was always in the eating area. Italians like to eat, and th these pictures would be in the eating area. So the first picture was that. Now, if you don't know who that is, that's Pope Paul VI. He was the Pope while I was growing up. And they always had a picture of the Pope off by itself. The second picture was the focal point. There you go. It was Mary. Does Mary look like a teenage Jewish virgin? She looks like a nun, but that's okay. And so Mary was the second picture. And then the third picture was a picture of Jesus, but as I remember it, he looked like Al Pacino in the movie Serpico. <laughs> a very Italian-looking, scruffy beard, longish hair, but clearly Italian. And so I grew up believing that Jesus was Italian. <laughs> Jesus Christ, the son of Joseph and Mary Christ from Rome, Italy. That's what I believed. And you know what? No one ever told me otherwise. No one ever told me otherwise. And so that's the problem. That's the practical aspect to this. Jewish people simply do not recognize Jesus as the Jewish Messiah because he's not Jewish. Jesus Christ is this Gentile God. I had a person that I work with in one of my early jobs was very anti-Semitic. And uh, he said to me, he happened to be German, but that's okay. He, he said to me, he said, you Jews missed the boat when you killed Christ because he was your Messiah. And being the cynical New Yorker that I was, and still am, I said to him, but if he's the Jewish Messiah, why doesn't he have a Jewish name? Jesus Christ is not a Jewish name. Irving Ginsburg is a Jewish name. If we had a Messiah named Irving Ginsburg, we could accept that. He's Jewish. <laughs> Jesus Christ doesn't sound Jewish. And he said to me, very prophetically, God is going to get you. And he was right. He did. And so, I want you to think in those terms. Jesus needs to be presented to the Jewish people as the Jewish Messiah. Remember the, when Joseph wasn't sure what to do with Mary when she told him she was pregnant? Remember that story? The interesting thing about that story, there was only one thing that Joseph knew for sure. You know what that was? He wasn't the father. That's the only thing he knew for sure because he never touched Mary. And so the angels, what does the angel say to him? Take Mary to be your wife. It's okay. She's pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And you will name this child Jesus. Now, where does that word Jesus come from? This is important. Jesus comes from the Greek Jesus. 
which comes from the Hebrew Yeshua, which means salvation. So when the angel was speaking to Joseph, he said, you will name this child Yeshua because he will save his people from their sins. We need to present Yeshua to the Jewish people as the Jewish Messiah. The word Messiah is a word that Jewish people are familiar with. As I shared with you, I thought Christ was his last name. I went to, went to school with a guy whose last name was Christ, only he pronounced it Christ. I said, boy, that's a tough name to live up to. So for Jewish people, Jesus Christ is not something that they relate to. It's not something that they recognize. When Joseph's brothers saw him, they saw a Gentile. They saw an Egyptian. They didn't see their Jewish brother. And that's the problem. We need to give them a way to recognize him, to see him as the promised Messiah. The person who shared the gospel with me, who prayed that he would meet a Jewish person, he shared the gospel with me. He was from the deep south. My dad had so many anti-Semitic experiences in World War II in the Navy and had a disdain for people from the South. So you could imagine the first person to share the gospel with me had this deep Texas drawl. And he just was someone who I had so much respect for. His testimony was unblemished. And he just was someone that I, I became jealous of. I wanted to know what the deal was with him. I even said that. Why are you so different? Why, why, are you, why are you not like anybody else? I even teased him. I told him I thought he was a space alien because he was so different. And he said to me, are you sure you want to hear the answer? And I said, yeah. We went back to his office. He told me to close the door, which he had never done. And he said to me, Rich, this is what makes me different. He pulled out a Bible, the biggest Bible I ever saw in my life. One of those Texas-sized Bibles, like the size of a phone book, with a bunch of ribbons hanging out of it. He hit it. He said, this is what makes me different. I read the Word of God every day. And then he said, Jesus Christ is my Lord and my Savior. Only he said, Jesus Christ is my Lord and my Savior. And I didn't hear anything else he said until he said this. He said, Rich, Jesus isn't only my Savior. He's your Messiah. He's the one you've been waiting for. He came once. He died for your sins. He's coming again, and you need to believe in him. Now, I wasn't ready to believe in him at that point, and I got really angry and told him Jesus couldn't be the Messiah. My people have died because of Jesus. If Jesus was the Messiah, there'd be peace in the world. There's no peace. But I couldn't deny the reality of his life. And that ultimately is what speaks to Jewish people. When your Christianity is authentic. When you present Jesus as the promised Messiah of the Jewish people and now the Savior of the world. And I want to encourage you. There is so many resources that we have at Chosen People Ministries to help you understand how to present Jesus from that Jewish perspective. So, Go to our website, chosenpeople.com. There's so many great resources. There's a, a book that we have called Isaiah 53 Explained that shares the gospel from the, from the Old Testament, from the Hebrew Scriptures. And the, the website, isaiah53.com, is where you can get a free resource to share with your Jewish friend. But I want to encourage you, 
take advantage of the resources that we have. Share the gospel with Jewish people from a Jewish perspective. Let them see that he isn't only Jesus Christ, the Gentile God, but he's Yeshua HaMashiach. He's the one that they've been waiting for, the Jewish Messiah and Savior of the world. And as you share the gospel, do it prayerfully. You know, God is dealing with Jewish people one at a time, one by one by one. And we've seen that happen and we've shared the gospel with people. And sometimes they react pretty angrily. Sometimes they're open. Whatever the case, share. That's what God wants you to do, especially in a place like Delray Beach where there are so many Jewish people around. More than half the people in Delray Beach are Jewish. We all need to be reaching out to bring the gospel to Jewish people around the world. So I want to encourage you to do that. And if any of you would want to get our prayer letter, my wife and I are missionaries with Chosen People. Just go to chosenpeople.com slash Freeman, F-R-E-E-M-A-N. You'll be able to get our prayer letter. And if the Lord's leading you to give to our ministry, you could do it that way as well. So be mindful of the fact that Jewish people, it's hard for them to believe. There's a spiritual aspect to that. Most of them are hardened. They're blinded. There's a historical aspect to it. We have 2,000 years of bad church history that we have to deal with. And there's a practical aspect to it. Jesus is not presented as the Jewish Messiah, by and large. He's presented as Jesus Christ. And there's nothing wrong with that name. But for a Jewish person who's been called a Christ killer, it has a different connotation. Be mindful of that. Be sensitive to it. And I want to encourage you, don't be afraid to share the gospel with your Jewish people. As Jesus said in John 14, 6, speaking to Jewish people, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, no one comes to the Father except by me. Think of what the alternative is if you don't share the gospel with, with that Jewish person that God has put into your life. Be mindful of that. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Thanks for joining us today. If you'd like to support this ministry, go to our website at fbcdelray.com. Also, click the share button so you can share this message with a friend or someone in need as we seek to know Jesus, to know others, and to make him known. We cry out, we cry out.